The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Okay, where are we? 1133. 1133, all's well. This is, as I was saying a minute ago, David, one of the odder airplanes that I've come across in quite some time. I don't know if you had a chance to... uh, well, there is a video involved, apologies, but uh, there's also a story behind this. Um, so it's the, uh, the there's some educational institution, I guess, uh, who have built this blimp, all right? But instead of being a blimp that has like, you know, like engine-driven propellers to drive it through the air, it's shaped like a fish and it has a great big tail on the back and the tail waves and it drives it through the air. And they're like making a big deal about how this is supposed to be, you know, the future of lighter than air aircraft, you know, because it's quiet. They say this is the good thing. It's quiet. This, yeah. This, I was say, this, this, is, this comes under the heading of large RC to my mind. Well, they seem to think they're going to make them big enough to put like camera mounts in them. They, they think this is a better way to do like, you know, taking video from over sporting events because it doesn't make noise and whatnot. Well, if you can uh, make that camera view uh, stable against the swishing of the tail, yeah, that probably would be. Right, because the tail swishes, and, you know, as Isaac Newton told us, that's going to make the whole body of the blimp, you know, swish as well. I I have just really one question. This was done in, well, two questions. This was done in Switzerland, correct? Apparently, yes. Do we know anything about their their drug use laws in Switzerland? <laughs> because this, I mean, okay, it's it's a nice technical exercise, in, 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 but as you correctly point out, you move the, you move the tail, and the whole thing's going to move. And so it's well, I don't it, know that it, it's going to be really good for a, a camera platform. It's it's an intriguing technology. Throw uh, in, no question, throw in but, a laser light show and some Pink Floyd, and. Uh, Boy, you could have something. Well, I want to know where we got to. We got to figure out where where Dave's seat is going to be. You know, because you know, Dave has to fly this Dave, thing. Dave's seat. It, it's going to have yeah. to get a lot Sorry. bigger to fly my butt. <laughs> well, I think a they're going to get big. bigger. Yeah, they're going to get bigger. It's, it, it does look pretty fragile right now. It looks well, like this a, one in the, in, in the uh, image on the story and in the video like is twenty five feet long. So that looks like and a it didn't ball. carry anything. Uh, I'm sorry, Jeb. It looks like what? It's like a water bottle in the still. You think a water bottle? That's not how I would describe That's it. That's not I mean, the first thing that would have come to my mind. It, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it kind of sort of does resemble something else, yeah. Uh, I, I get, you know, if you're used to miniatures, sure. Um, I don't know what that means. I don't think I want to go any further with it, though. Uh, it looks like a fish to me. I mean, it's shaped like a fish. They've gone out of their way to shape it like a fish. I think they the only, need the only thing it's missing here is the little sign that says "available at finer adult toy stores nationwide." You have an <laughs> awful lot of of respect for this idea. You think this is just a toy? Well, no, I think they're onto something here, but I think they may be over complicating the solution because uh, obviously this thing has to have some kind of mechanical motion, uh, some right. kind of mechanical drive to put the uh, the uh, left and left to right tail swishing well, in. Read, it. read the third. The we, read the third graph, though, and, and that talks about okay. Replaces uh, traditional airship propellers with long artificial muscles strapped to each side of the blimp. The I muscles understand. are made from acrylic polymer with carbon electrodes deposited on either side. When a high voltage is applied across the electrodes, the listeners, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to finish this paragraph anyways, establishing a strong electric field across the polymer. Later in the episode, we're going to talk about cylinders, so it only gets worse from here. Electric fields across the polymer. Uh, the electrodes are attracted to each other, physically compressing the material and forcing the air fish to flex. Alternate, alternating the voltages yeah. to each polymer muscle and the contractions will make the airship sway like a fish. So, put, put some more membranes on either side of its hinged tail and it can swish it back and forth. I can see this being applied to uh, fishing lure dolls fishing that lure. have motion that Marilyn Monroe would envy. So you don't think uh, that 
You don't think that some future version of a debonair is going to have a tail that wags in order to drive it through the air? Not and do 170 knots, no. Mm, I I, I don't think there's going to be a, well, I mean, we kind of sort of already have future versions of the debonair. They're called Cirruses Um, on one level. On another level, um, we'll be in, you know, we'll be using APUs for for power plants in the next 20 years. The piston engine, we can talk about, you know, cylinders and all that kind of thing. But piston engines and, and retractable gear and all that kind of stuff is going to go the way of the dodo. All right. Well, if that's not an airplane – I'm sorry, David. You were going to say something? Well, the, my statement about them overcomplicating a, a, a solution to the noise problem is, is based on this. We know from firsthand observation that some of the uh, light sport and ultralight aircraft that are flying on electric motors are hugely quieter – than their internal combustion counterparts uh, because they've done away with the internal combustion engine and all the noise that that makes. Also, using electric motor allows you to select uh, an RPM range for which a, ta- a propeller can be tailored. It's inordinately quiet. It does Just because an airplane engine runs at 2,200 or 2,500 or 2,700 RPM doesn't mean an electric drive setup has to run that fast to produce the requisite amount of thrust. If you pitch the propeller or a fan to produce the same amount of thrust at a lower RPM, you're going to do that and create lower noise. Third, when you put the distance that a camera platform has to be above a sporting event to be acceptable to regulatory authorities and able to capture a wide scene appropriately when they zoom back, throw in crowd noise, and nobody's going to hear that puppy on an electric drive with a slow fan. Period. They're just not going to hear it. Okay. Yeah. If you have a better, if you have a better drive and a better fan, because it is true that these camera plat- platform blimps can be heard from the ground very noticeably, assuming there's no loud crowd noise. Right. They, uh, they can be heard because there's an electric, there's a gasoline engine, and and a fan, and. They're turning at the optimal, or approximating the optimal RPMs for the engine power and the fan thrust, and that's probably around 2,100 RPM to get a semi-quiet. Uh, throw away all the gas engine noise, and you've thrown away a, a, a significant amount of the noise that those fans hear on the ground. Slow that fan down more, and for further evidence that this idea works, you look at a couple of the jet engine makers that are working on geared inlet fans on their high bypass ratio engines to slow those inlet fans down to by about 70%. Going to still deliver the same bypass air and same bypass thrust, but at a much lower RPM, lower noise footprint, less fuel consumption, now did I. So put yeah, an electric motor but- on that camera platform with an appropriately pitched and designed drive fan or prop. And by the time, you know, even in the crowd standing quiet waiting for the national anthem, they're, they're not going to really hear that thing up there, and it's certainly not going to be at a level that makes them go, well, I wish they shut that quiet thing off. <laughs> well, two, 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 two thoughts. One, most LSAs are fairly quiet to begin with, even if they're running a Rotax or, or something like that. Uh, certainly, certainly compared to say, you know, my IO five twenty, even with a three blade prop. Um, second item, uh, the slower you turn the propeller, the longer the propeller has to be, right, to get the same thrust. So there's a there's a happy hunting ground, happy medium here, uh, that uh, you know may or may not um, um, be realized if we're using uh, electric uh, motors to turn the propeller. Thirdly, I would guess that um, the battery system required to run um, the, the electric motors, whether it's on a, uh, an airship like this or, or um, even an LSA or something like that, um, the energy density of the, of the batteries is not going to be a, as great as the, the liquid fuel, whether it's diesel or gasoline, used to, to run an internal combustion engine. So... There's still some technological issues to overcome relative to um, certainly certainly this this uh, swimming this this airborne fish uh, uh, design, uh, but but also um, even more practical designs using uh, batteries and electric motors. 
um, the, the, the energy density of, of gasoline and diesel fuel is still uh, hard to beat these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think hopefully, the technology that they're playing with is really cool and, and is bound to have a lot of great practical applications. Uh, and, you know, making an air fish so you can see how this technology works by swimming a blimp through the air is pretty cool. It's just way overcomplicating a platform solution. Uh, yeah. Think of better things. Better things, better things. Back to the drawing boards and, and, and uh, you know, be sure to check with your connection first. And they, can I get that with tartar sauce? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 190. Ooh, we're getting there. Of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Monday morning. It's just barely morning. Uh, Monday morning, June 7th, 2010. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar are two of my good friends. Uh, first of all, Jeb Burnside is out there talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you this morning? I'm well. Um, uh, had a great weekend, got a bunch of work done, and uh, um, looking forward to a, a, a peaceful week and uh, getting some other things. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, not to get not to touch on a touch a, a, a sore subject. Uh, you sort of alluded to it, I think, last week or the week before. Um, are they seeing oil on the beaches over there yet? What 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 what's the buzz over there? This is not an aviation thing. We're going to talk about this for no, like two minutes, and then no, there's 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 been no oil on the beaches here in, in the Sarasota area, and I, I you know I've seen anecdotal reports of oil on quote Florida beaches unquote. But I haven't seen uh, any news media coverage. I haven't seen any uh, uh, amateur photographs or anything like that. I have seen um, images um, from uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama, Mm -hmm. which is just west of the Pensacola area. Uh, And there is oil washing ashore there at at Gulf Shores. So it's, it's just a matter of time. Um, in, in the way the currents run and in, in this kinds of things, I would guess that we'll start to see oil in the Key West area mm. before we'll see it here in Sarasota. Oh. Um, but I, you know, I, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, and I'm not a marine biologist okay. or oceanographer. All right. Well, the whole thing sucks, but that's all we'll talk about. Oh, he, does, he does, on the other hand, talk to himself underwater. I don't understand what that means. Either. I don't understand that either. <laughs> this is going to be one of those episodes. Hey, yeah, listen. I, I, I generally, you know, yeah, sometimes I'm underwater and sometimes I talk to myself and sometimes both of those events can occur at the same time. But generally, uh, uh, I don't do it when the window's open. Google Lloyd Bridges. Okay. I don't um, need to. And that's Dave Higdon, who's also here in the virtual hangar, and he's talking to us from uh, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you this morning? Oh, uh, just been an unbelievable weekend. Uh, I heard, yeah. It's uh, one of those where, boy, you just can't believe the kind of news and information that comes your way and makes you glad to see Monday. That's right. That's right. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm talking to you from uh, the UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop lookout point in the sunny but a little bit chilly this morning, Nottingham, New Hampshire. So... uh, What's going on in the world, anyways? David, you, uh, you know, we were talking about, we were trying to find a way to put you on board that fish airplane, but, uh, and that wasn't going to work, apparently. You did call our attention to an, another uh, unusual but beautiful airplane that uh, you apparently have some history with. What's the story of this, this Monocoupe uh, 110? Tell us about this. Oh, the 110 special. Well, some of the folks listening have probably heard uh, uh, the word uh, about the birds that are going to be for sale at auction at. AirVenture, uh, auctioning off airplanes at, uh, at AirVenture this year. And periodically, the, uh, the folks behind the auction will send out a little flash about one of the airplanes available at the, uh, that will be available at the auction. And this one popped up in my email box late last week. Registration number, November 110-X-Ray Zulu. Man, that sounds familiar. Looked at the picture. It's a Monocoupe 110 Special. It's one of a kind. Uh, It was built based on the original Monocoupe type certificate. For those of you that don't know, Monocoupe was a uh, monoplane, high wing, tail wing uh, racer from uh, the late 20s and 30s. Early 30s, easy for me to say. Uh, this was built by Aviad out in Afton, Wyoming, when they were considering returning the airplane to production. Uh, instead of a round engine, it's got a modern 
AEIO 360 Lycoming. Uh, I think it's 220 horsepower, fuel injected with FADEC technology on the engine. Uh, I think that may be the electronic ignition too. Uh, cruise about 100 and uh, cruise about 185 miles an hour, uh, and burns about nine gallons an hour at 60 percent power, where it's doing about 165 miles an hour. Little skinny, narrow, antique race plane, mm-hmm. very evocative. And I got, I was lucky enough to spend a few hours with it back about 1999, working on a story for a couple of publications. Uh, that's an airplane I, that, if I had the bucks to go to the auction and compete, I would actually feel comfortable bidding on because I've flown it. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah, it's a fast. It's a wicked fast aerobatic airplane. Yeah, it. So you say it's a it's a one of a kind. It, is it? It looks familiar to me. Is it like another design that's legendary and historic? Well, it's yeah, it's like the original monocoupe. Okay. And if you look up the old monocoupe, there was a series of uh, of racers. Uh, they used big round engines. And the owner of the at the time the owner of the type certificate. Uh, uh, Young man, I'm not going to say his name because he may not still own it. I don't know that story right now. But a young man who's an aircraft engineer, structures engineer, acquired the type certificate and uh, the rights to the airplane and worked with Aviat to build a single prototype, modernized a little bit, like with the engine uh, and some better stuff in the panel, uh, with the idea of reproducing a... uh, uh, a golden age personal air racer with modern engine and avionics and all that. And, uh, sadly, it didn't get past this one, uh, this one prototype. Uh, but yeah, it's, it except for the cowling, uh, it is pretty much identical to the to the original monocoupes that you can still find flying out there. Um, now, am not, I reading not, this right? This thing says that this thing at, at well at fifty five percent cruise uses. Eight and a half gallons of gas an hour. Is that right? That's yeah, that's pretty it, good. That's a fifty-five. It? Yeah, that's well, that's not bad for a, 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 a IO three sixty. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Jeb, you cruise. You, you're up in up in fifteen or something like that when you cruise, aren't you? Or am I? Am I... Um, first hour, I figure I burn eighteen gallons. Uh, subsequent hours uh, depends on how fast I want to go and how high I want to go and things like that. Uh, but anywhere from twelve and a half to thirteen oh, and a half okay. is average. Um, the flip side of which is um, I'm doing about twenty, thirty miles an hour faster, and um, I'm carrying probably twice as much too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it, at the at the Monocoupe One Ten Specials, uh, hundred and eighty five mile an hour cruise speed. I figure that's a little over what about one sixty knots, one eighty five miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, it's about one sixty. About one sixty. Uh, that that engine's going to be burning right around eleven, a little over eleven an hour. Mm-hmm. At no. at seventy five percent power, doing one hundred and eighty five. So that eight point four at fifty five percent power, it's down around one hundred and forty knots. Now, does this thing have two seats or four seats? Two seats. Uh, okay. The original designer was a guy named Don Luscombe. Mm-hmm. Uh, he first flew back in the uh, late 20s. Uh, there were only about 320 of them built. Uh, they came in a variety of engine powers. Uh, uh, they were designated the Model 22, uh, which had a radial. The Model 70 had a radial. Uh, the Model 90 uh, and uh, with a 90-horsepower radial engine. Uh they evolved over the years, but uh, they went out of business in the late 40s, it seemed like, in, or early 40s, and then came back briefly in the late 40s and then went away again. Don Luscombe went on to design other things like the Luscombe Silvera that we still see around today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but they went all the way up to 145 horsepower uh, in the original run with a Warner Super Scarab engine. Right for listeners who aren't don't have the picture in front of them. Um, so this is a uh, high wing 
monoplane uh, with uh, uh, wheel pants, tail dragger. Um, what would you say? It's, is this aluminum or fabric? Oh, it's fabric. Uh, it's it's fabric with fabric a steel f- tube fuselage. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, originally wood in, in the wing structure. Yeah, very pretty airplane. Very pretty airplane. Obviously, we're yeah, going to get a chance to get up close with it at uh, at Oshkosh if we want to. And this is just one of um, fifteen aircraft listed so far uh, for this auction that's to be held during this year's Air Venture. There are several other aircraft, obviously, uh, that are, have already been listed. There's an Air Coupe. Uh, there's a just a very cherry uh, Cessna 150 um, that looks very nice. Um, there's a uh, Stinson, there's a Cessna 310, here's a um, uh, Polish-manufactured Wilga. Um, let's see, the one I wanted to point out, though, there's a, there's a Quad City Challenger on Amphib floats. Oh. It's basically, a, um, it says LSA, Amphibian LSA. Uh, it's in Florida. Uh, it's got a Rotax 582, uh, and the starting bid is only $5,000. Well, there you go, Jeb. We know where Jeb's going to be on that day. Well, maybe, maybe. There's also a, uh, a Paris jet, uh, and it will not start at $5,000. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's not, actually, it's not, a, it's not a Paris jet. It's a, a Moraine, uh, I'm sure I'm going to butcher the uh, pronunciation, Moraine uh, Saunier uh, MS-760. That's very much like a uh, Paris jet, however. Well, they, they've got quite a variety in this auction. They've got a they really 76 do. King Air 90. Uh-huh. Uh, is an there, air coupe. Do I have to flip through every page here, or is there a list someplace? There's not a list. Well, there might be a list somewhere, but you have to flip through the pages. Okay. Item two is the um, uh, the Quad City Quad City Challenger on Amphib floats. There's a Pulsar. Oh, it's interesting. It's quite a variety of airplanes. I wonder if that's intentional. I bet it is. Oh, I'm sure it I, is. I bet it. That's according to who's got an airplane for sale. Well, you know, funny how that works. Yeah, but to have a variety like this is is probably, you know, kind of like want to cover a lot of ground here. Uh, very cool. Very cool. All part yeah. of the uh, the uh, aircraft auction this summer at AirVenture. Let's see now. Jeb, so um, uh-huh. numerous times over the last 189 episodes, you have bemoaned the state of the aircraft cylinder business or world or industry or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so now there's a story, uh, in, uh, in, uh, we should bring Amy into this. Yeah, that's right. She's got some very practical, uh, as you do, but, uh, she very recently has some practical issues with this, um, story in, uh, AvWeb, uh, Lycoming takes piston manufacturing back in house. And I don't know if these, these two things that I've just mentioned are related, but, uh, what's this story all about? Is this, uh, significant? Well, it, it, it might be, um, Kind of set the set the stage here. Uh, on one level, uh, it's been six, maybe twelve months ago. I uh, uh, wrote an editorial in, in Aviation Safety about uh, um, just the the continuing problems that operators have been having, as well as of course manufacturers have been having with um, failing cylinders, cracking cylinders, cylinders that that don't meet spec, and, and, and things of this sort. And a lot of this has to do with just the economics of the industry these days. A lot of this casting work is being farmed out to subcontracting uh, foundries and, and, and whatnot, uh, scattered, I'm sure, all over the world. Uh, it's obviously consequently difficult for Lycoming or Continental or any other manufacturer to you know, engage in a lot of quality control with some of these things, and, and stuff gets through the QC process. Um, at the same time, um, even even the the uh, aftermarket manufacturers, ECI, uh, um, Superior with their Millennium series, uh, but equally Lycoming and Continental with their factory cylinders, everybody over the last six, eight, ten years has had some kind of a major cylinder issue. And uh, my lament had to do not so much with uh, specific manufacturers or specific part numbers. But with the fact that, hey, you know, guys, you know, this is kind of a critical part of the engine. Uh, we got to get this right. Uh, and, you know, what does this say about an industry if, if we can't get it right? And if everybody in this industry is having these kinds of issues, 
what does it say about our overall quality control? Uh, but what does it say also about trying to get uh, um, legitimacy and respect from from uh, uh, the public? What does it say about trying to attract new people into this industry, in this community, if we can't even make a cylinder anymore? And that was kind of my lament. Okay. Um, in this news story, uh, now, now a piston is not the same as a cylinder. Uh, the piston, they do course, go together. They do go together. The piston, of course, goes inside the cylinder. Um, and um, um, the, the p- part of the equation here is I'm not aware uh, of, of any recent, anyway, recent uh, piston issues, especially concerning Lycoming engines. There may be some out there. I don't have a Lycoming, so I don't pay that much attention. But uh, Lycoming says they're going to bring back in, or, or certainly bring in-house, their piston production uh, for whatever reasons. Uh, it's more of a machining, it's a casting and machining process. Um, uh, and quote, um, now we don't have to worry if there's a supplier out there to fill our needs, company spokesman Scott Miller told uh, the Sun Gazette uh, newspaper. We can fill our own needs. Um, and um, the other quote here is that uh, um, the uh, the process that they're going to be employed that they're going to employ here, um, uh, in partnership with the Cosgrove, Cosworth Group, and, and anybody who's paid much attention to Formula One and, and other international racing knows the name Cosworth. Um, Cosworth, a key player in designing the machine uh, process line that they're going to be using at Lycoming uh, to make uh, uh, pistons, and says the system is quote far in excess of anything Lycoming's c- competitors have, and that may well be true. Um, but the punchline is, Lycoming's bringing this stuff back in-house for a variety of reasons. I'm sure that quality control is just one of them. Um, they, they probably also reached the point where uh, it's, it's more cost-effective uh, for them to do this in-house, considering you know, recalls and the chance of, of, quote, bad things happening, unquote, down the road. So um, that's a good thing. It's a good thing for Lycoming. It's a good thing for the industry from where I sit. Mm-hmm. But now, it, it's, it, it's just one facet, one part of the equation. You you make a very valid point that the cylinder and the piston are in fact two different things. I confess that 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 when we've always had these conversations in the past talking about cylinders, I've sort of taken it as a system, and thought we were talking. I don't know. I didn't really think about it consciously, but I in my head, we were talking about pistons as well. So we're not. In the past, we've been well, talking about the cylinder itself. Which cylinder itself. Not. Yeah. C- cylinder itself. The cylinder. Um, uh, the cylinder has to do a lot of different things, and its metallurgy and its design uh, are, are re- really rather complex um, when, when you come to think about it. The problem, from my experience with cylinders, has been there's too little material in certain areas of the cylinder, and um, things start to crack. Uh, cylinders, of course, pistons are, are, are much more uh, um, uh, live in, let's, let's put it this way. Pistons live in a much harsher environment uh, than do cylinders on one level. The, the piston is always being subjected to, to literally thousands of, of uh, um, high-order explosions every minute as, as the engine runs. The cylinder must contain all of these explosions. So it's got pressure uh, um, that it has to deal with. Um, the heat produced by all these explosions has to be dissipated somehow. That heat has to, uh, that, that's the job of the cylinder also. Uh, in the process of which, um, you know, the, the cylinder also has to contain the valves. Uh, it's doing a lot of, of different things. Uh, the cylinder is a much more complex component than a, quote, simple, unquote, piston. That's not to minimize uh, uh, the, the design and, and engineering of either component. Um, but I guess, you know, these engines are not... Um, uh, new design. Mm-hmm. The, the, these same basic engines have been around going on 80 years. Um, we should have kind of sort of, I think, figured out how to make these things some time ago. And uh, the fact that we're still running into engineering issues, we're still running into longevity issues uh, with with what are, while, again, they live in a fairly uh, uh, intense environment, these are well known. Uh, the engineering here is, is very well known. These products are very well known. Uh, what goes into them is well known. And why we can't figure out a way to fix some of these cracking issues 
why we can't figure out a way to make sure that the metallurgy is correct as it comes uh, uh, as, as the cylinder product goes out into the field. I'm at a loss. Mm-hmm. I really am. Yeah. Well, clearly, I'm going to have to learn more. But if I'm going to become an aircraft owner, I guess I need to have a little bit more complete understanding. Bill Cosby. Well, next, Bill next Cosby used to be. Here. Yeah. Next time you're down here, yeah. I have a couple of cylinders. Um, and a couple of pistons, and there are stories behind both of them. Okay. Well, I'd like, yeah, we'll, we should talk we'll, about that. We'll have a little short course. My understanding of, of, of many parts of the airplane, Bill Cosby used to be famous for loving really fast sports cars, but he was also very, very uh, uh, truthful about the fact that he, he understood nothing about how they operated. He used to say, he used to say, here's everything I understand about how, about this, this sports car, he say, Fill it up. So, yeah. <laughs> that's everything he understood. And I'm not He's, far behind. He, he, he said kind of the same thing about his Gulf Stream. Did yeah. he really? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, that's interesting. Okay. So, uh, changes to the way uh, Lycoming, anyways, is doing their pistons, not their cylinders. Big news. I guess big news. Um, in the next-gen uh, area uh, over the past week, um, the... Uh, you know, I'm not even going to try and summarize this. Dave, this is a, AADSB is something that you seem to be very fond of and very passionate about. So why don't you tell us exactly what happened here in the past week? Let me preface this um, by saying, and I may or may not leave this in the podcast, um, in last week's episode, we started to talk about, um, we recorded the episode before this ruling came out. Yeah. And uh, we were Basically, talking came about that we day. Right. We were talking a little bit um, in the last episode about um, some of the final steps that the feds were uh, releasing, I guess, prior to finalizing this rule. Um, But our listeners didn't hear that conversation because uh, by the time I was editing it and cleaning it up, uh, the rule itself had already been released and it was kind of of a redundant kind of dated good, conversation good okay yeah. so uh, david uh keeping in mind that we didn't they did not hear our conversation of last week david tell us what what this adsb ruling is all about well it basically sets the equipment requirements and the timeline for uh adoption of adsb out technology in addition to the transponder you use now so that the FAA's next-gen system can see here and there come, uh, well, I think they're talking about 2020 for the final, imp- that they're talking about 2020 right. for the final impl- implementation right. date. Right. And uh, the uh, system, the, the ground structure will be in place uh, several years earlier than that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential benefits for users and for the FAA in this system. But the rule as issued by the FAA uh, disappoints because it seems to only focus on setting up the system so that they benefit for sure from the uh, uh, improved surveillance technology. And the rest of us can benefit if we want to get ADSB in, and as long as the FAA holds to its promise to uh, enhance and light up all the services that make ADSB in worth something more than just a collision avoidance system. Mm-hmm. A couple of things. One, this is this is something that's been in the works. This this is the um, ADSB out final rule that the uh, FAA published last week. It's it's been in the works two or three years now. Um, uh, this is the result of, of a, a lengthy uh, rulemaking procedure by the FAA. The public has had a chance to comment on it, and, and there were a lot of comments. Uh, the FAA's uh, uh, final rule document goes through how they uh, responded to all of those comments and, and, and whatnot. Um, a couple of other things. This, this affects ADSB out, uh, not ADSB in. Right. Uh, kind, of, kind of sort of by design. Uh, because um, that was the proposal uh, from a couple of years ago. Uh, secondly, um, they have to have the ADSB out uh, technologies in place, of course, before uh, you get uh, anything in the way of ADSB, and it's kind of a chicken or the egg situation. Um, now, the problem. Can, can let me just sum, let me quickly here um, for people not in the know. Um, this is airborne equipment. We're right. Talking about. We're to a- ADSB out, which is what the rule applies to. 
to oversimplify it perhaps, is just a system where an airplane broadcasts its position and the, system, the central system you know, grabs it up and puts well, it on the radar it, screen. It broadcasts it, it, more than just its position. It broadcasts right. its identification, its type. Um, it broadcasts its altitude, uh, its, its speed necessarily. Um, a lot of that information is then used on, by ground-based equipment to um, project its flight path, um, to obviously compute any potential conflicts, uh, to figure out where it's going to be in, in you know, X number of seconds or X number of minutes, um, things of that sort. Okay. Now, ADSB-N would include what sorts of capabilities? ADSB-N, based solely on that data alone, would then give you traffic information. It would give you, um, uh, based on what the, 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 the ground-based computing uh, capacity, that automation, the ADSBN would then transmit to your airplane information all the other airplanes around you uh, uh, to start with. Um, other features of ADSBN would include um, both textual and graphic weather information. Uh, could possibly include ATC clearances and instructions. Um, could uh, um, include a, a lot of other information. Now, to what uh, extent does ADSB in exist now? It doesn't uh, per se. That there's there is a lot of now. Let me let me back up from that. Uh, there are pockets of ADSB ground-based um, uh, equipment installations around the country. Um, there's one here in South Florida, for example. Uh, there's a chart um, dated um, almost a year ago that the FAA has published showing ADSB coverages uh, around the country and, in fact, around the world. Um, the uh, again, we have a chicken or the egg issue here because ADSB in and the value of that to an airborne aircraft, an airborne crew, uh, is dependent upon what kind of information they get in part on the aircraft around them. Since not so many aircraft are equipped with ADSB out, you don't get so much value and so much information these days, currently, from ADSB in. Uh, in well, if, you're, if you're flying somewhere where the ground system is, is operational, and there's four areas of the country that are declared operational uh, fully, uh, around Juneau, Alaska, around Louisville, Kentucky, uh, the, most of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, which went live in late December, South Florida, uh, which went live uh, a little over a year ago, and Philly, the Philly area, which went live earlier this year as well. Uh, ADSB in in that part in those parts of the world will get you other ADSB out equipped aircraft as well as what the FAA's radar feed sees rebroadcast to your end channel by ground stations. Okay. We'll also get you uh, data link weather uh, from the uh, Flight Information Service B, uh, broadcast they call it. Uh, in those areas, that's all live now, and they're adding the rest of the country uh, with the ground stations and the infrastructure to hook that all into the ATC network at a pretty good clip right now, and they expect to have the country completed in 2013. And before, you know, you kind of grasp your head and say, well, that's a long way off. That's not a long way off. Uh, by the end of 2012, something like 90% of the continental U.S. will have coverage. That's, uh, you know, a little over two years out. Right. Uh, so if yeah, I wanted to, well, if I wanted of- to put... Um, ADSB in and out into my 172. Could I do that? Is the gear available? Yeah, some of it is. Um, the, All of it the, is. Well, yes and no. There's there's um, some competing technologies here. There's the uh, the 1080 or 1020 ES extended squitter technology for the for the MODES transponders. There's a, a 978 uh, technology, and both of these numbers refer to the frequencies being used. Um, the European operators, um, to my recollection, uh, haven't yet, or, or, or some of them perhaps have standardized on, on uh, one or the other. The, the FAA ADSB out proposal uh, seems to, and I have to 
confess that I'm just not up to speed on some of these details. The ADSB app proposal the FAA published last week seems to em encompass both of these frequencies and both of these technologies. Um, the quick answer is yes, you can go out and, and talk to Garmin uh, and equip your, uh, your 172 with both ADSB out and ADSB in. Um, I would perhaps caution against doing that in that uh, I don't believe that the final configuration and the final standards for these uh, boxes has, has really been finalized. Uh, Is that the case for both in and out? Um, no. In it depends in, on the technology. For in, I think, it, for in, I think, it, I think uh, the jury's That's really what I out. thought. Wait a minute. Uh, in for is out, you, you, the, uh, the problem is not so much uh, that the technology hasn't been finalized, but it's maybe the hardware hasn't been finalized. In other words, you can go out and buy stuff that will, quote, work with this stuff, but it's going to be a bit kludgy. Right. Uh, and uh, if you waited another year or two, uh, you will see Garmin and, and uh, some other manufacturers. Trig comes to mind as one I think will be a player here um, in, in developing some some really neat ADSB out stuff that that won't cost you an arm and a leg. And um, uh, will okay, be there are there are multiple ADSB out solutions available now that meet the TSO. Okay, Garmin makes one. Uh, Garmin's about the only principal manufacturer that has uh, hardware that uh, is compliant here, and that's that's one problem. The other the other problem here is is the cost benefits. Um, the right. FAA it, it, in its in its final rule um, all but admitted that there are very few benefits here for general aviation. Uh, but a lot of costs are associated with it. In fact, the FAA's numbers, their own numbers, um, basically state that something like 2.9 billion, with a B, in uh, in average costs to general aviation, and only a 200 million, with an M, in benefits uh, under the current under this final rule. Um, basically, the the um, the thrust of the, the regulatory effort here in this rulemaking is that ADSB out will be required equipment in, lo, in areas that a mode C transponder presently is required equipment, plus a whole bunch of others. Uh, and that's got a lot of people kind of sort of scratching their head. I've even seen um, uh, reports from the airline industry saying, hey, wait a second, guys, you know, even your own cost numbers say X, Y, and Z, and, and uh, the benefits are, are, are A, B, and C to us, and we don't see the math adding up. What's in it for us? Uh, you're going to see a lot more of that coming out of the GA community also. Gasoline is in the news. Let's see now. Um, I saw a couple of stories. There's only one on our list here. Um, this is a story from a website called politico.com, time to turn to algae-based fuels. David, you called our attention to this. Um, I saw a story very recently that, um, what was it, Lycoming? Or one of the two big engine manufacturers has said that this, uh, what is it, 93 octane, 96 octane UL stuff is a, a bad, bad idea. Um, it's, even 90, it's 94 UL. 94 UL, and one of the big engine manufacturers has been touting it, and the other one is now saying no, no, no. So that's an issue. Uh, of course, we've talked about swift fuel in the past. David, you called our attention to this algae-based fuel story. What's this all about? Well, there's been all this talk up and down the, the, the political circles and the energy industry circles about you know, the, the need for energy independence and about the need to reduce our dependence on imported petroleum. You parallel that with the threat to 100 low leads existence and the EPA's uh, recurring interest in getting uh, rid of the last leaded fuel still in production in the United States. And I, I pointed this out because this, on top of the Gulf oil spill, has just raised awareness to the idea to an even higher level that we're not really doing much more than making hot air in terms of progress on this. Uh-huh. It doesn't seem to be any any concerted, serious effort to make this spin into something, uh, any of these, into something that will go forward. 
uh, 94UL, as, just, as Jeff pointed out. You know, that's, that's been around for a while. We talked about it before. Uh, one engine company is saying that's the keys to the kingdom. The other one's saying not so fast. Uh, independent manufacturer development its own fuel. Uh, you know, they're saying, well, that could take care of it for most of the aircraft that need 100 low lead. Uh, it, it all comes down to, I think, uh, a, a public commitment of, of, and political will to do something about it and not just keep uh, talking it to death and talking it in circles. I, yeah. One of you guys, and I, can, I, I confess I can't remember which one of you it was, but one of you, uh, maybe both of you, uh, have said in the past that you feel like a choice needs to be made. We need to settle on one of these new fuel technologies. And, and you really think that's the case? I mean, what's wrong with having a bunch of these fuels available and let the marketplace decide? A couple of things. This morning's AvWeb's lead story uh, is reporting that uh, Lycoming is saying 94UL would, quote, be a huge mistake, unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, Continental is the, um, uh, the engine manufacturer behind 94UL. Uh, and it kind of sort of stands to reason that Lycoming would say, eh, wait a second here, maybe 94UL is not the, uh, the best uh, solution, especially perhaps since Continental is pushing it. Um, Continental, in, according to the story, itself is saying that a combination of, quote, tweaks, including low compression overhauls, engine replacements, knock sensing, and electronic controls, unquote, would be required on certain engines to work with 94UL. Well, if that's, if that's the kind of thing that's going to be required to make 94UL work, then perhaps it's not the right solution. Um, there are there's Swift Fuel, there's 94UL, there's uh, G100UL, uh, or, or uh, I, be- I believe it's called G100UL that's, that's being promoted by um, um, General Aviation Manufacturers, Inc., out of Ada, Oklahoma. Uh, Swift Fuel is, is uh, being promoted by the, the Swift uh, uh, people. We've talked about this a little bit in, the pa- in a couple of past episodes. Um, right now, the economics of, of aviation gasoline uh, the distribution systems, etc., really argue in favor of a single fuel. And if if 94UL, even according to Continental, is going to require that list of of uh, changes to existing engines, uh, then perhaps 94UL is is not the best solution here. Um, we need a, a solution that operates these high compression. Um, turbocharged, uh, high-horsepower piston engines uh, without additives, without, quote, tweaks, unquote. Um, and we don't, we don't have a, we're not over, uh, over center on, on uh, what, what that should be right now. Why do you feel that um, the system requires us to only provide one fuel? For example, Sanford, Maine, they sell three different kinds of fuels on the field. Um, well, that's, that's Sanford, Maine, and good for them. Yeah. Uh, they, but they only probably sell uh, one aviation gasoline, and that's 100 low lead. They might have MoGas as, as one other of the, of the fuels, and they might have jet fuel as the third. Yes, Is that in correct? fact, those are the three, yes. Yeah. Well, well the, the MoGas unleaded premium, for example, is, is um, um, not compatible. Uh, certainly, it's not, it's not usable in my airplane. And, and um, there's certainly a, a vast majority of airplanes, I won't say a vast majority, a vast quantity of airplanes that, that uh, unleaded premium can uh, be run in, but not legally. Mm-hmm. Um, there, again, you've got engine issues, but you've also got fuel system issues in the air. No, I, I know that's not the fuel. I'm just saying that infrastructure-wise, they're able to, to stock and, and pump three different kinds of fuel. I understand that. Uh, and the... the uh, the distribution systems um, certainly can sustain that. With with that that third fuel, the third fuel being premium unleaded, um, I, I guess the the problem is we want to try to make this as simple as we can. Okay, and uh, a lot of people have said, um, going back to AOPA and, and to uh, uh, fleet operators and uh, um, uh, engine manufacturers, whomever, uh, as well as the FBOs. Have said, you know, we, we need we, we can't have a bunch of different uh, solutions out here. We need to pick one and settle on it and implement it and move on. Yeah. 
David, anything to add? I agree with Jeb. I, 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 I think you start floating too many conditions or variables out there, and, and it's, it's not going to be the smoothest setup for a transition or to make one of these solutions a success. Um, and it's something that requires a lot of, you know, modification of fuel systems and aircraft is going to have to be pretty bloody simple to get people interested in adopting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Jeb, there seemed, a couple episodes ago we talked about Air France 447. Um, right. At the time we were optimistic because uh, they thought they had gotten some new data on uh, where the wreckage might be. Uh, and then it turned out not so much. Um, and and now, have they stopped the search? What the heck's going on here? They have. Um, basically, what happened, according to, let me pull this up, uh, according to a May 25 article, um, dated Mar- uh, yeah, May 25 article in Bloomberg, uh, the hunt uh, for these black boxes has been called off. Um, one of the reasons it was called off, incredibly to me, is that the lease on the seaborne equipment um, to do this underwater search ran out, mm-hmm. and the equipment had to go someplace else. Um, it, it, in a way, it's kind of a comedy of errors here. Um, they they started this search, and, and uh, we can go into a lot of detail, you know, in in the in the Air France four four seven podcast uh, about how the search was conducted, what areas of the ocean they were searching, things like like that. Um, about halfway through this search, uh, the French military, or the French Navy, I should say, uh, got together with the, the searching, uh, uh, I guess, BEA, which is the French uh, NTSB, um, and said, you know, look, look over here, because we've finally been able to crunch through some data that we collected back last summer when we were doing some of the initial searches, some sonar data that we collected, um, and we've processed it, we've done this, we've done that, we've done the other thing. And we think this other area is the place you should, you should search. So they diverted their equipment, their attention to that other area and, and came up uh, with snake eyes. Um, and there's, there's some, you know, intra, uh, uh, or I should say extra bureaucratical uh, uh, um, infighting going on over there relative to who said what to whom and when and this kind of thing. But uh, the punchline is... Um, that the search has been uh, halted as of late May, um, and uh, they haven't found anything. Uh, I'm, I'm um, quite frankly surprised uh, at, at the outcome here. Um, I would think at least the, they would be able to find the engines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and from there, you know, find you know, other parts of the airframe and, and find the tail where the, where the black boxes are mounted. What, what uh, makes this, the this engines really more findable? Because they're they're heavy, they're big. They're unlikely to have uh, uh, broken up on impact. They have iron in them that that uh, magnetometers can detect, um, and uh, they they just should be a lot easier to find than a bunch of the uh, uh, a bunch of pieces of an airframe. Well, that's interesting. Let's see now. Finally, uh, off field landing of the week. We had two of them this week. Count them two. Uh, the first one is from uh, this is this this story. Uh, this is a poster child for how the mainstream media can can screw up the reporting of a uh, of a uh, aircraft situation here. Um, this is from the website. Oh my goodness! Um, it's it's I have no idea what this website is. It's iol.co.za. Anybody know what .za is? New Zealand? Is it New Zealand? I'm not. It could be. It could be. Um, uh, uh, but see, the story is from Germany, um, so I don't know. A private German pilot landed his plane on its belly when the landing gear locked after once seeing. Oh, and it's, here's my favorite part: the guy. According to the story, they believe that this guy successfully accomplished an, a gear up landing because he had seen it done on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> Klaus Gericht safely brought the Cessna light aircraft down at Figari Airport in Corsica after the plane's wheels jammed. He first That's a long way from New Zealand. Yeah, I know. And Germany. Yeah. Um, he first that. circled the airport uh, on the French Mediterranean island for an hour to burn off excess fuel while ground staff covered the grass beside the runway with foam. Oh, goody. Yeah. Uh, Garrick, the doctor from Dusseldorf, then cut the engines and glided the plane safely into land. 
He and two passengers on board who were on a holiday on the island all escaped the drama unhurt on Tuesday morning. Garrick said afterwards, just before coming into Figari, we noticed the landing gear wouldn't release. We had no choice but to land the plane on its belly. It was a dangerous thing to attempt, but luckily I'd seen it done once before on YouTube. So, okay, there you go. Um, they they foamed the grass. Uh, he saw it on YouTube. I don't know. All I know is these guys got the airplane down safely and good for them. All right. Um, the rest of it, I take with a grain of salt. I have no idea what really happened here. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at the at the video here. First of all, this is a, a beach travel air. I was wondering. I'm thinking that's not a Cessna. Yeah, so, it's, it's, uh, it was basically precursor to um, um, a uh, Baron. Mm-hmm. Yep. With 180 Lycoming uh, engines in it. Uh, and he landed. It looks like pavement to me. Uh, uh, yeah, I because can, as I understand it, yeah. landing on the pavement with no gear is way safer than landing on the oh, grass. way safer. And that was, that was another place I was going to go. But uh, um, did a good job. Um, the only thing I would comment on is next time open the door before you touch down. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, my instructor taught me everything off and everything yeah. open. That was the rule, all right? And it's, uh, if you're going to have to land like that, turn, you make, make sure everything's off and everything's open. And that was uh, the rule I was going to yep. use. They, they should be able to, to use that airplane again. Yeah, I, that's right. I mean, a gear-up landing, you know, if everything goes well, a gear-up landing, as I understand it, is not that dramatic. I mean, it can go bad, no question. But in, as a rule, it doesn't, right? Yeah. As a rule, they're reparable. Yeah, reparable, exactly, yeah. Second off-field landing of the week, and this is a unique one. Um, in, in the years that we've been doing off-field landing of the week, I don't think we've ever had an airline off-field landing of the week. Uh, this is from uh, AvWeb. Commuter flight lands on highway. Highway landings happen all the time, but not usually with paying passengers. This happened in central Manitoba, Canada on Friday. The pilot of a Gillam Air Services Britain Norman Islander sat down on a straight stretch of highway near Thompson, about 500 miles north of Winnipeg, after an apparent engine failure. There were five passengers on the nine-passenger twin. The pilot told authorities he couldn't maintain altitude on one engine, so he put it down on the highway and taxi to a picnic area so as not to disrupt the normal occupants of the asphalt. There was How no damage and him. no injuries. I know, yeah. Pretty cool, huh? So, see? It, it works. It works. Although it's another landing on the, on, on the road. I don't know. See, I'm just, I guess, I guess I'm gradually slowly being convinced that this is reasonable. But, uh, man, if I was up there and had, you know, if I had two choices, a road and a nice field, I'd go for the field myself. Well, I mean, in Manitoba, how many cars do they have, really? I know. That's what I'm thinking, too. It's nice of them to taxi off the road, but I'm not sure how how necessary it absolutely was. So. Sure highlights that old line about airplanes, some airplanes having a second engine there to take you to the scene of the impact. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But uh, congratulations to the crew for uh, for safely getting themselves and their passengers down on the ground. So that's... Uh, Two off-field landings of the week this week. Shout-outs. Let's see now. Um, first of all, I'm going to start. Um, I've got a shout-out to myself. I just kind of wanted to uh, alert our listeners to something, um, and that is that uh, long ago, um, before I discovered podcasting and Twitter, all right, I used to be a pretty prolific blogger, all right, and you can see my old blog at uh, jackhodgson.com slash weblog. Um, but then we started podcasting and Twitter came around and a couple of years ago, I pretty much stopped blogging, all right, because all this stuff was just keeping me busy and I was still communicating, just not through my blog. But recently I've started blogging again. Um, and if any listeners care, all right, uh, you can see my new non-aviation blog. Um, and it's at the, it's at this address. Um, it's at andc.blogspot.com. That's A-N-D-C-E-E-D-O-T dot blogspot.com um, or a shortcut will be you can go jackhodgson.com slash new blog jackhodgson.com slash new blog there's no aviation stuff there all my aviation stuff is going to be at ucap and at around the field um, but uh, this new blog has a lot of other things that interest me like technology and baseball and tv and movies and even the occasional bit on on politics so if you're interested you can check out my new non-aviation blog it's andc.blogspot.com or um, look for a link in the show notes or uh, at jackhodgson.com. So that's my new, that's my shout out to myself. How's that for a first, huh? What else here? Uh, uh, online ticket sales. Uh, who wants to talk about uh, AirVenture and uh, online ticket sales situation? I think, David, you're the one that put this on the list. Just popped it in there as a reminder to anybody that thought they might be going that uh, there's a, a, a window on the discounts they offer on the ticket and that closes uh, here shortly. 
Uh, and if you're not going, you, you don't need to worry about it. Just listen to us. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, let's see. I've got a couple of things here I wanted to follow up on. Uh, we talked last episode, I think it was last episode, um, about a, a forum posting from a listener um, uh, who was asking us for more information on uh, flying without the lights when, when you had an electrical failure or a lighting failure in your aircraft. Oh, and that, yeah. that came from uh, a, a listener whose name I mispronounced badly, and I knew it at the time. We all uh, butchered that one. Yeah. But uh, uh, this listener uh, uh, posted on Twitter uh, saying, uh, thanks for the answers regarding lights out flying in UCAP 189. He said, it's pronounced Kane. Uh, it's K-O-E-H-N, but he, and I thought it was Cone or Cohen or something like that. But he said it's pronounced Kane, and nobody gets it right. So I uh, just wanted to correct the record on that one. Uh, and then also, um, Farid Gyo from uh, EAA was on the podcast last week. And one thing we wanted to mention and we forgot is that he wanted to put out the word that EAA Radio is looking for uh, additional volunteers this year, specifically in the area of videographers or people who do um, you know, new media videos video. Uh, and so if you're planning to attend Oshkosh and you know a little bit about doing, uh, you know, new media video uh, or, or professional video, traditional video, um, you ought to get in touch with Farid at uh, EAA to uh, volunteer at the radio station because like, apparently they're going to do more and more video stuff uh, in addition to their audio stuff. And uh, we'll put a, yeah, I, I think it's just Farid at EAA.com. I don't know. Actually, I can Oh, and I can't get it easily, but uh, uh, we will uh, put an email address in the show notes uh, if you want to get in touch with him about that. And then finally, uh, let's see. Now, what's this open house thing, David? Oh, some uh, some nice folks, America Jet up at Salina and the Salina Airport having an open house on uh, Saturday, June nineteenth, and uh, for y'all, you can eat pancakes. Uh, you can fly in, see the planes there. They're doing discovery flights. They've got some Canadian fighter planes and helicopters and balloon rides uh, tentatively scheduled, uh, seven a.m. to noon. Uh, knowing how some of our uh, listeners are always looking for a good excuse to fly somewhere, flying to Salina for their open house on the nineteenth is in one that you can uh, consider for your list. Yeah, that, that's in Kansas. <laughs> it's in Kansas. I know. Yeah, we had. A, I heard from a listener who, the other day who uh, we're, we're about to do another one of our little uh, um, New England uh, uh, Nashua Airport uh, brunch meetups uh, this coming Saturday. I'm not sure if most people will be listening to this podcast by then. But uh, uh, in response, someone said, "Oh, we need to do a UCAP meetup in Oklahoma," and I and I said, "Well, yeah, just let us know when you're going to do it, and we'll publicize it, and Dave might even show up." You know. I suggested that he do it in uh, co-located with the monthly Ponca City Breakfast, but uh, you know, uh, all kidding aside, anybody out there uh, who wants to organize a, a UCAP listeners uh, meetup, uh, we'd love to see you do that, and just let us know when and where, and we'll uh, we'll spread the word as best we can. So, uh, and if it's if if it's nearby, one or more of us will appear. You never know. Uh, uh, that's all the shoutouts on the list. Anybody got any other shoutouts? Jeb, Dave, I'm done. Okay. Well, then, Jeb Burnside uh, is an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, it's interesting you ask. I've recently had a little change in status. Um, uh, Previously, I'd been full-time with Belvoir and full-time doing uh, uh, Aviation Safety Magazine as well as uh, serving as a contributor to uh, Aviation Consumer. Um, That changed uh, middle of last month. Actually, uh, I should say right before Sun and Fun. And I'm back to uh, full-time freelancing. I'm um, still serving uh, as editor-in-chief of, um, of aviation safety and, and uh, might be contributing to consumer uh, from time to time. Um, but I um, just want to kind of put that on the record. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you might also find me at uh, AEA.net as well as uh, AviationSafetyMagazine.com. And you might uh, uh, check the personal website, which is JEBurnside.com. Cool, cool. And uh, Dave Higdon uh, is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, World Aircraft Sales is at uh, avbuyer.com. You can find me at aea.net, hanging out with with Jeb and the AEA folks. Uh, uh, DaveHigdon.biz is the personal photography website, or 
Google me and take potluck against the uh, theoretical physicist and the golf writer. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com, at my new blog, and c.blogspot.com, and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our terrific show notes. Uh, Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earle and the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage in the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the UCAP blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? If you want to live to be old and cranky like somebody I know behind my microphone, go flying because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Bye-bye. That's right. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. AMFFN. FFN.